Hey, my name is Zach, and this is the Plaid Jacket Philosopher, the podcast for tradespeople and the blue-collar middle class. I'm hoping to punch a few holes in the stereotypes that surround blue-collar workers and hopefully share a lot of the stories behind how we got into our line of work and the honest joy you can get from working outside of the office space. The plan is to mix in interviews as well as some solo stories from job sites, fatherhood, and personal experiences that led me to where I am today. Some will be funny, some will be personal, but hopefully any and all content here can help broaden what your opinion is of the blue-collar middle class. So today, rudely interrupting my intro is CJ. Uh, CJ Sorry. is my... <laughs> I'm just kidding, man. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He's my my first American guest coming all the way from Colorado. So, you know, uh, give him a warm welcome. And uh, CJ, I'll kind of give you a few minutes to introduce yourself, what you do for a living, you know, anything you want to share. Yeah. Uh, my name is CJ, like you said. Uh, I'm 33, live in Colorado. And uh, I'm an aircraft mechanic for a living. Um, I'm also a husband and father to two amazing little girls. And uh, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome, man. How, uh, how are you balancing everything right now with the, with the lockdown? I don't know what the rules are like in Colorado, but I imagine anybody who has kids and a wife and a full-time job is having a bit of a tricky time balancing everything right now with all the added stress. Oh, definitely. Uh, to say full-time job is a, definitely an understatement because uh, right now we're actually working mandatory overtime. Uh, my industry, thankfully, has gotten um, busier, actually. So we it's good to know, you know, with the economic downturn and all that stuff and the lockdowns and all that, that uh, companies and places are still taking care of their airplanes. That's awesome, man. And I, you know, it's funny, like uh, you bringing that up, I've kind of experienced the same thing where we're a lot busier heading into December and kind of into the holiday season than we normally would be. And oh, I don't really have any explanation for it, but a lot of the tradespeople that I talk to are experiencing the same thing. Like I've got buddies who are union electricians who are working balls to the wall right now. They can't keep up. They're working six days a week, 10 hours a day. And, you know, every three weeks, they'll kind of get that Saturday off, but it's, I don't know what's going on right now with it. You know, you hear about all these job shortages and job losses, but the trade sector seems to be kind of humming right along, which, which we're pretty lucky and I'm not going to complain, but it's uh, it's kind of interesting. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, like today we actually had our, our uh, lead meeting with uh, management and all that stuff. And they told us that uh, we're, for this for the month of December, we're actually sitting at, 150% of our projected revenue. Like year to year basis? Yeah. For So for December, normally, I think the ballpark they gave was, you know, uh, I think it was like three to 600,000 yep. for the month. And we're at 150% of that for projected for the month. That's incredible, man. And yeah, like yeah. I, I can understand <laughs> kind of the stress involved in that right now, but at the same time, like, yeah, I've got buddies who are out of work. And so for, for me, like, and you, I can tell you're, you're thankful for it too, but I'm, I'm just happy to keep working, but that's awesome, man. I, is there yeah, any absolutely. explanation for it with the aircraft mechanics, why it's still so busy? Not really, honestly. Yeah. I mean, the only really explanation they gave to us is because uh, my department, we're the citation department. So it's um, private jets. Um we, because the manufacturer is still making the airplanes and still coming out with new models and stuff like that, yep. um, our department's actually going to, is slowly but surely expanding. 
So we're hiring more people. We're bringing in more of a workload to try and just hack us in to make that money kind of thing. So that's awesome. That's pretty much the only explanation I can think of is they're just trying to grow us. (laughs) Right on. Well, that's good. PJs. Hey, have you had anybody famous or any, any, any kind of famous or well-known planes roll through there who have famous owners? Yeah, actually. Um, uh, we have a bunch of NASCAR drivers come through, um, like just, we regularly see Bill and Chase Elliott. Um, I've met. I'm going to nod as, as a Canadian, I'm just going to nod. Like, cool. (laughs) (laughs) I forget how big NASCAR is in the States because I'm up in Canada. Yeah. I mean, even in Colorado, there's like, we have two NASCAR tracks, but they're not, neither of them is like the high level series kind of thing. Okay. So it's not big at all here, but even here, you know, there's NASCAR everywhere. (laughs) That's interesting. I always, I always associated NASCAR with like the Southern U S but that's, yeah, that's interesting. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Anywhere else is like nowhere near what the South is kind of thing. But I mean, they, like I said, they travel everywhere. And so I've met probably a good three or four, five uh, different NASCAR drivers. Um, as a Broncos fan, I was like super giddy. Uh, John Elway. Oh, yeah. See, I, I know who John Elway is. Yeah. He brought his private jet to us to work on. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah. It's, so we get famous uh, people who, I mean, we don't ever hardly really see them. Because Naturally. they have just someone who manages it for them. Yeah, they got they minions. To, exactly. They don't have time to, you know, meander with the, the lowers. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, this is like taking so, his car for an oil change. Like, ah, you take care of it. Right, exactly. So, yeah, man. But no, it's cool. It's the occasional, you know, shock moment of the, the celebrity status. Yeah, that's awesome. And so what kind of schooling is involved in getting into into being an aircraft mechanic like how many years or what what kind of cost associated with schooling does that carry so for here in the u.s we have what's called an a and p license which stands for airframe and power plant okay um the schooling if you go through a formal school because there's multiple ways of getting this uh, license here okay um schooling is for me was 18 months and that's about standard for 18 to 20 months for most anywhere um, so it's really quick, but it's also just like a bare bones, um, get you familiar with systems type thing rather than an extensive training okay. kind of thing. So it's, it's one term you used widely in the industry is just, just a license to learn okay. like to get you, you know, like I said, the basics and that's yeah. pretty much it. So, um, and depending where you go, it can be like community colleges all offer the schooling and it's a lot cheaper than say like the premier schools, like universities also can offer the offer it. Um, but yeah, it's mine was about 30 grand. Okay. So. And, yeah. and, and so like, but I mean, does it really carry any difference between the, what, what school you went to as far as your ticket certification or anything? As far at the end of the day, no. I mean, when you look at it on your resume, it'll just say, you know, A&P license, there are schools that are more um, premier, I guess you could call them. Yep. Um, like the biggest one is, is called Embry-Riddle, which is down in Florida, Daytona area. Yeah. And uh, 
you can actually get like a bachelor's degree and with these mechanic certificates and all that stuff like that. And they do, they do go a lot more extensive with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just, it's all the same license. That's a lot like electrical too. Like we have a lot of schools up here, kind of the, I guess the premier one for the the biggest school is BCIT and, but it doesn't really make any difference. Like every electrical school year, it's a four-year program. I go to school for 10 weeks and then I have to carry, I believe it's 1500 or 1600 hours of on the job experience to then basically graduate to the next level. So by the time you're done schooling, you've had about 40 weeks of school and around I think it's around 6,500 hours of on the tools experience. And that all has to be signed off by your company or whatever, whoever's sponsoring you to then get your, oh. your ticket. But then that ticket's good for across Canada. So it's kind of, it kind of sounds like the same, roughly the same thing. Our schooling yeah. just allows us to learn on the job essentially. Yeah. It's basically just like a federal license for us. Yeah. Kind of thing. So it's anywhere. Basically I can work on as long as I'm proficient on it, mm-hmm. I can work on any U S registered aircraft. That's awesome, man. And like, like when I think Canada might be a little bit different with the the cost associated to our schooling, but I know like, I mean, we get American news up here all the time. All they they talk about is kind of the student loan (laughs) debt that people carry moving forward. But I mean, Mm -hmm. 30,000 to set yourself up for a career really doesn't sound that bad compared to a lot of the other kind of student debt loads that people will take on to get you know, something, some kind of accreditation that doesn't actually give them any real world job opportunities. Right. Yeah. And that's the glory of it is a trade school is not going to charge you, you know, five, $10,000 per semester thing. And, you know, and you're not, and you're actually getting something that you can use. You're not getting some four year college degree that has a, in a saturated market that you're not going to be able to even use. Yeah, man. I, I, I completely agree. And I'm sure you're kind of similar where you actually enjoy working with your hands and kind of sitting in class didn't exactly appeal to you all that much. Oh, absolutely. I had zero desire to go to a four-year university or anything like that because, you know, those core classes was terrible for me. I barely graduated high school, but I'm really good at fixing stuff. So yeah, I I decided to go to school instead and, uh, you know, I'm making really good money and I have zero student loan debt. Man, it's, so. <laughs> and it's wild. I mean, it, it not, to, you know, not to pump your tires too much or anything, you know, good old Luongo hockey term, but like, you know, you're 33, <laughs> you have a family, a house, like, you know, and I'm kind of in the same boat. Like I'm 31, have a mortgage, a family, like trades are a really viable route. And it was something that I really kind of wanted to bring light to on this podcast too is that you don't necessarily need to chase that chase that four-year university degree or whatever you're looking at like you can Mm -hmm. you can really build a life and build a career with with a trade certification yeah absolutely and it's you know like with we what we went we're talking about with the quality of schools and all that stuff like that at the end of the day it just it the only limit is yourself yep uh in the trades especially it's not about you know, who, you know, I mean, it kind of is, that is anywhere, but it's more about your skills as a, per, as a person in that occupation. Like if you're good at what you do, you're going to advance far more than you would in industries that require those four-year degrees. Yeah, man. I, I agree. Like what I've kind of, what my favorite part about the trade world in general is at least that I've experienced, I've been in it for I'm 31. So 16 years now, essentially is how long I've been in trades. And it's, 
you know, it's exactly what you said. Like sometimes getting, getting that job, it's handy to know somebody, but as far as actually moving up in a company, you're not going to move up unless, you know, you're willing to put in that effort and you actually show that you've earned it through, through merit. Like you've actually put mm -hmm. in the time and it's a real, it's a real kind of meritocracy when it comes to trades. At least that's what I've experienced. Any of the companies that mm -hmm. didn't kind of employ that, like they, they implode pretty quick. Like the workforce just kind of dries up. Nobody's feeling motivated at all. Like it's, that's, that's one thing I really like about trades is that you actually do feel like the work that you're putting in will actually reward you down the road. Yeah. And, uh, especially at my company too, is, you know, anyone that's in upper management currently mm -hmm. started at the bottom as just a tech. Yeah. Like, like my bosses are, they were techs and leads and then their bosses were techs and leads, albeit a long time ago, but you know, right. they did it. Yeah. And like the, the best sites that I've worked at for the best companies, like we could actually see kind of like we had one guy who was a journeyman on site, then he became a lead hand. So like second to the foreman and then he became the foreman. But we literally went from working like shoulder to shoulder with the guy to them, he, then him being the foreman. And it just created such a good culture in the company because you could literally see like that. OK, this guy stood out from us like he he earned that promotion and then he moved up. And now we have no problem working for him because we know he's earned it and that we can earn our way up there too. Right. I, I just love yeah. that, that kind of culture that trades builds. Oh, absolutely. It's um, especially if you spend, you know, years side by side with the guys, they become yeah. your family. And so you know, people are more willing to share information, more willing to go that extra mile for the guy that they're working with. Totally, man. Uh, like, yeah, whether you're working under him or if you're working and you've got the guys below you, you're going to you're going to put in that extra effort for those guys around you. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and have no problem doing it either. No. And so, so the other thing I wanted to get in with you is like we were talking, you know, to anybody who doesn't know, we kind of we met in an NHL trash talk group, which was a lot of fun. You know, you're obviously an Avalanche fan. I'm a Canuck fan. But I I got to, you know, that group was kind of the only uh, the only Americans that I really knew, but I, that I was able to talk to going through like that crazy election cycle and the past basically two years in the US, because obviously like mm -hmm. we get we get American news, but we get I don't know, we don't get the feel right. Like I, I have no so say in this, like the sensationalized side like, of it. kind of Exactly. And we have like I have no say in who becomes president down there. So like I don't really care. It's almost like a reality show up here, but it's something that you know, you can't turn away from <laughs> like, no, you know. it's like watching a train wreck. <laughs> oh my God. At least you said it. I wasn't going to say it, but yeah, yeah. That's, that's typically how it's described up here, but, uh, oh, absolutely. But yeah. And so I'm, I, I, what I was really interested though, in kind of talking to you kind of through all of this and we, there's a couple of other Americans, obviously in the group that we talked to, but you were pretty, pretty outspoken about voting th third party, which in this case was Joe Jorgensen the, for the libertarian mm -hmm. candidate. And yeah, I, I think we share a lot of the kind of same views along that line. Like, and we're seeing it a little bit up here in Canada. Mm -hmm. I mean, we we kind of technically have three big parties for the prime minister or to vote vote into the House of Commons. But typically, it's always come down to two parties, liberal conservative, which are kind of a lot along the lines of, although not to the same, I think not to the same extremes as in the States, but, you know, Democratic and Republican parties, essentially. So our conservatives mm -hmm. are kind of like your Republicans, although our colors are crossed up. Our uh, 
our more right. democratic candidates are red and our more conservative candidates are blue. So, you know, it'll get just weird to me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. But, but anyway, um, but like, I've kind of seen it up here too, obviously in the States, it's been kind of, it, it almost seems like it's gone into hyperdrive, the level of kind of animosity and tribalism between the two sides, but in Canada too, like it's, it's really not far behind. If it may not be behind me, we just may not get as much coverage of it. But it's it's scary to me, man. And a lot of the stuff that you were saying or even just sharing or talking about, like the whole libertarian concept really appeals to me, too. I like the idea mm -hmm. of kind of, um, you know, just kind of taking authority over your own life and kind of, you know, that 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 really appeals to me. I understand that a lot of people may think weirdly of of uh, of libertarianism or think that it's, you know, kind of harsh, but. I, I figured that we could kind of talk about it and even just talk about the crazy tribalism and just radicalized divide in the States as well at the same time. Right. And you know, it's been, it has been going on for, you know, decades before we were even born, but in recent years, I've noticed, especially since around the, you know, 2008, 2012, 2016, all that. Mm -hmm. And it's ramping up, especially is, um, candidates who didn't win their election were more they were viewed because they weren't conservative enough they weren't uh democrat enough kind of thing yeah. like when mitt romney lost the, the the election they said he wasn't republican enough kind of thing so i've noticed in recent years that like the more extreme left or right a candidate is the more likely their party is to align with them. Like you have to be, you know, hundred percent left, hundred percent right kind of thing. Right. So, and <clears throat> with the whole, you know, um, can't remember what, what you called it with the tribalism. That's what it's the oh, whole yeah. tribalism with it is, you know, it's just my club is cooler than yours and it has zero to do with any type of uh, issues. It's just, you know, we have to beat them rather yeah. than, you know, do the best thing possible for the country. And so that really steered me away from the two main parties because I used to be a registered Republican. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to vote, you know, on our, in our country. I've used to vote red down the board. Mm -hmm. um, and then several years back kind of thing and just looking at them like, you know, what the heck are we doing? Yeah. You know, I got tired of the whole, uh, the, my club versus your club kind of thing, yeah. you know? And so I started, I changed my registration to independent mm -hmm. and kind of started, I toyed with the idea of third parties, but didn't really get too, too much into it up until, uh, I want to say earlier this year, back in like the March when the whole pandemic all that started, I was really looking into, started looking into the Libertarian Party because, you know, with the whole lockdowns, with the whole, basically like the authoritarian governments, just, you know, that's all they want is their, I think they're pressing their power kind of thing. And yeah, that's I, not I to say to that, that's not to say that, you know, with COVID and all that stuff, I am the furthest from a COVID denier. Yeah, I, you know, I'm in the I, same boat as you. I'm in the same full boat. on real, you know, I understand the risks and I take the precautions as well. 
yep. kind of thing. Um, but with the whole, you know, control thing, I, it's to me, it's uh, really rubbed a lot of people wrong as, you know, and it's taken to that extreme that's really shoved me away from even further from that duopoly type thing. And so with libertarianism, that's, you know, your, uh, your rights, individual rights are paramount over anything else. Yeah. And so that's when I really started to delve into the libertarian party platform. Yep. And I'll say this right now, I'm far from an expert on it. So don't want to take my word for, you know, I'm in, stone, but. <laughs> I'm in the exact same, I'm in the exact same boat yeah. because, and I think, I think a lot of people are in that boat because just, I mean, you look at the two candidates, did either of them really inspire much confidence? You've got Trump or Biden no. to geriatric. No. And like, and so I think that a lot of people, and I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to kind of have this talk with you too, because I think a lot of people are kind of just opening their kind of minds to that third party mentality and kind of libertarianism in general. But I think, mm-hmm. uh, and I think, I, I personally love it too. Just the idea of kind of, you know, personal accountability that you're, and like exactly what you said that um, like your personal rights are kind of above everything else. And, you know, you, mm-hmm. you take that seriously. Like it's, like you said, it's nobody's shirking at the idea of COVID or being a COVID denier at all. But, but these kind of lockdowns have really, I think opened a lot of people's eyes to where, you know, kind of governments can kind of overstep their bounds a little bit, especially in states like California and New York. I don't know how it is in Colorado, to be honest, but I know mm-hmm. even here, I mean, it, the lockdowns just today got announced that now they're rolling through to January 8th. So you're not allowed to have anybody from outside your house. So I can't have my parents, my sisters, my brothers, anybody else inside my house. And I can't go into their houses until after or until mm-hmm. at least January 8th is what they're saying here. Uh, yeah, and it's, I mean, Colorado's not as bad, I guess you could say, as like New York and California type thing. Yep. Um, but, I mean, it is pretty severe. Obviously, we're getting record numbers right now for positive tests and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, you know, which makes me even more thankful that my family personally hasn't been directly impacted it as by it as far as like someone getting sick in our household. Yeah, yeah, I'm in the same boat um, and, there too. And where we live, it's a smaller city of we got 150,000 people in the valley here. And so we're not, you know, seeing the overload that major cities are seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, but and our governor has been doing a decent a pretty good job with it, I'd say. He is a democratic governor. Um, so it's kind of already he's already fed into the disdain of a lot of people anyway. but um yeah yeah i mean you're always going to have people on either side that don't like what someone's doing right just um, because of the the letter beside their name right exactly and so but as as for the job he's done with it i can't fault him really because he with like mask mandates and Mm -hmm. the whole level like we have a spectrum for levels of openness and whatnot yep um most of it's been taken like a month at a time so like mask mandates are only 30 days and so they revisit it and all that stuff um which is good and then here in my county they have a variance program to where 
like restaurants are still allowed to operate with in in uh, in person dining and all that stuff, but they have to meet certain requirements, which I think is a lot better way to approach it than just shutting everything down and just destroying people's livelihoods. I agree too. Like it's just, it's striking that balance, which is obviously tough to do. Like, and that's why in BC, actually, I think it was November 19th or something like that, maybe November 17th, but that's when they finally, I say finally, but they, they instituted um, like mandatory masks inside, which I think Mm -hmm. at least like it cleared up the confusion because, you know, you could see fights on social media all the time about, you know, COVID deniers and then the crazy mask people too. Like it was just, it was nuts, right? Like it's, it was just, yeah, it was crazy. But at least now that they've kind of just made it across the board masks indoors, if you're shopping or if you're out anywhere in public so that, that, you know, and again, that's something that to me, I can, I can go along with if it means that we can keep kind of some semblance and some balance of like regular life. Like we have the same Mm -hmm. thing here. I actually just went out for the first time that me and my wife actually went out for dinner since this whole lockdown started in March. I mean, part of that's because we had a newborn who was born March 8th, right before the lockdown. So we've had a newborn this whole time and then the lockdown just right (laughs) alongside him. So we didn't get a chance to go out for dinner anyway, but just this last Saturday, we went out for lunch. (laughs) It was awesome. It was a little bit strange, you know, walking in there with a mask and having all these plexiglass shields up around your little dining booth. But, but Mm -hmm. I, I completely agree with you. If it helps you kind of strike that balance of, having a regular life while also kind of being conscious of it with the masks. Like that's, I'm all for it. You know, that's, it's, it's tough to strike that line. Like I know I see a lot of people arguing about, you know, their constitutional rights or whatever. It's, it's tough to strike that line between rights and responsibilities. You know what I mean? Because like when you have all these rights, you also, they also come with responsibilities in a sense. And I'm not, I don't love wearing a mask. I, I don't like doing it to be honest, but you know, when I'm going in and out of people's houses, I do wear it and I, I can understand Mm -hmm. the idea behind it. You know, I don't know how you feel about that, but that's kind of where I stand. Um, I guess at at this point, I'm just really used to it because, um, at work I have to wear a mask every all day, every day, Mm -hmm. um, kind of thing. And then just going out to stores and going out to dinner and restaurants and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just become normal, I guess you could say. (laughs) which weird, uh, but I hate saying that it's, I know, but, but at the same time, um, and I'm going to kind of delve into the libertarian thing again is, you know, the whole, the NAP, Mm -hmm. the non-aggression principle, which, uh, you know, basically in a real compressed description of it is just do no harm to others Mm kind of thing. So like, if you, say I am have COVID and I a, am asymptomatic kind of thing. Like my intention is not to get anyone else sick. So I'm going to voluntarily, you know, I'll wear my mask yep. and I'll make sure. Cause I don't want to get someone sick, obviously. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, I don't want to harm anyone. And this goes right along with it is you have that responsibility to your, your fellow man kind of thing to, you know, make sure that their individual freedoms are also protected. So, yeah. And I, I agree completely with that. that fine line for sure. Yeah, You're right. It, it is a fine line, but you're right. It, it kind of, I, yeah, I think we have the same kind of view of that where it is. Yeah. You've got your rights, but it's also like balancing the responsibilities of kind of, I don't know, your input into society, I guess, and kind of protecting whatever you can, right. Like taking, 
I don't know, that kind of taking ownership of that to me in a little bit. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like Canada, I don't, I don't <laughs> even know if we have a national libertarian party, to be honest. I know BC has a BC libertarian party. I think they probably got 12 votes in the last provincial <laughs> provincial vote, but, <laughs> but like, you know, it, it is what it is, but this kind of stuff is kind of starting up because I think a lot of people are kind of getting sick of the big political parties here as well. I mean, we have, mm-hmm. We have so we have three parties. So if you can believe this or not, so Justin Trudeau and the Liberals are actually supposed to be our moderates, our middle of the line. And then you've got the Conservatives, which would be kind of I, I wouldn't say they're as kind of far right as your Republicans, but they're to the right of the spectrum. And then you've got the NDP, which are to the left of the spectrum, which is the new Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Well, like right now, I mean, it's honestly it's like a it's a neck and neck race to see who can get farther left between the liberals and the NDP in Canada. And then, yeah. but they're just dragging the conservatives farther and farther left as well. So it's just, I don't know, Canada drives me a little <laughs> bit nuts right now <laughs> with some right. of our, our, our national politics, especially when it comes to kind of firearm ownership and just individual rights in general. I, it drives me insane, but I'm sure we can do yeah. that on another podcast with uh, with with another Canadian <laughs> gun owner because I don't think the laws translate to the American laws at all. No, but it's. Uh, <laughs> I haven't looked too much. I haven't looked too much into Canadian politics. I, I gotta admit, and as far like I've had very limited conversations on like gun ownership and all that stuff like that up there. Yeah, but from what I've heard, it's it's apples to oranges between you guys and us. It really is like, it is a different mindset too. Like I'll, I'll be honest. Like I actually, I appreciate that Canada has laws set in place. Like, I mean, in the U S it's, it's your second, it's your second amendment, right. Is the right to own Mm -hmm. firearms in, in Canada. There is no, there is no actual right to own firearms. It's more of a privilege. It's something that you have to get a license for, which I can understand. And I wish that it was written somehow in as a right, because then it wouldn't be so easy for the politicians to just make it kind of a policy grab and something to to buy votes with is because they just kind of toy around with gun owners every, every election cycle. But uh, yeah, in Canada, so we have to get a possession and acquisition license, which then you have to write a two day course, write an exam, get at least 80% on it and prove that you're proficient in handling firearms. So it's, it's between a pump action, lever action, uh, semi-automatic you have to show basically that you know where all the functions are on then if you want to go for pistols or shorter barrel firearms then you have to go for your mm-hmm. restricted so it's an added license on top of that but i do actually i do appreciate the fact that in canada you do have to prove proficiency with firearms in order to actually own them which i think i think it probably saves a lot of people in the long run I, but again like it's just such a different culture with firearms because it's not written into our rights so I, I right. understand why an American might bristle at that and think you guys are fucking crazy. Like, so <laughs> what are you talking about? I mean, so if I, I'll offer my thoughts on that too. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, um, I'm, I'm gonna, eager to hear that from an American. It's gonna kind of sound like I'm one of those, you know, gun nuts and crazy kind of thing. <laughs> Just <laughs> go for it. Basically, yeah. So I'm a strict believer in the shall not be infringed. Right. Uh, part of the Second Amendment. If I, I firmly believe that there's no weaponry that the government has that a citizen should not be able to, to own. Mm-hmm. So, like, the government's got tanks. It should be my right to own a tank. Right. If I'm a multimillionaire, it, I want to own a tank. 
Right, exactly. <laughs> now, to s- <laughs> it's just so funny if- hearing as a Canadian because to me, I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's <laughs> pump the brakes here. But but go on. I, I'm I'm interested. And in like it. I said, it, it sounds completely irrational and stuff like that. But at the same time, you kind of have to be because if you don't, you just let them kind of chip away at it, and so it's like, where do you, where do you let them stop? Like, where is enough enough? So. It's not to say that I don't think that every person should have a tank or have a bazooka or anything like that, but I think that they should have the right to. Okay. Yeah. Kind of thing. But, so, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. You know, the, like, um, and as far as like any type of restrictions on, on it, like common sense gun laws kind of thing, even that I believe as an infringement, mm-hmm. because anything that's going to deny you the right say you know by some other person saying like i want to go buy a uh, ar-15 here in colorado i have to go through a colorado bureau of, of investigation background check okay in order before i can purchase any firearm so i'm, um, I'm curious what do you know what roughly is involved in those background checks in the states so basically it's a 10-year background check okay um, and this is Colorado specific. Every state has their own laws. Right. Um, because the U.S. is it, a lot of people, I guess, don't really know our government structure. So like probably, each state has its own each state has its own constitution that has its own articles and all that stuff like that. And then the federal government is like basically like a blanket type thing that regulates, you know, the states together kind of thing. Okay, but basically the the federal government is supposed to answer to the states, kind of okay. thing. And so, um, so I'll speak for just Colorado, but um, like yeah, it's a ten year background check, um, and then it just makes sure it checks you know criminal convictions, um, and then like if you're on any type of watch list or whatever, they won't tell you right anything that they find on it, but right. they'll say yes or no. Okay. Kind of thing. And so, so if you get, even, Oh, sorry, go ahead. No. And even for uh, like private sales, like if say you and I met up and I was going to sell you a, a rifle or a pistol or something like that, even then a background check is required. Okay. Kind of thing. So now if, if you fail a background check, is there like a wait time until you can apply again? Or how does that work? If you, if you aren't cleared? No, there's no, there's, as far as I know, I don't know of any type of restriction. Like if you fail mm-hmm. a background check, I mean, you could probably try again. You'll just it fail costs again. Money. It costs money every time. Okay. Because okay. it goes through the same uh, body that ser- does the search kind of thing. It's the, the CBI. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So like that's so vastly different to Canada. I mean, for us, uh, so again, the possession and acquisition license, that's good for a five-year term. But when, when I, when I wrote that course, it was two days in class of firearm handling and then a written test, basically it, it's all, it's all basically about parts and safeties on firearms, you know, the different ammunition, everything, everything that goes involved with the firearm. Sure. And then, so then after that, you have to submit a form that takes about six months to come back. And it's, uh, I mean, they do everything, man. Like I had to provide my wife's number. I had to provide um, like any ex-girlfriend I'd had within the two years before that. I have to provide like family, all these all these different references for like character witnesses. 
And then mm -hmm. even at that point, so I know they phone my wife, they phone my dad, they phone people to kind of check like my mental state. They also check for any mental health records. If you've been on any, any antidepressants or anything like that. And then your name, after you get the license, it's ran through CPIC, which is the Canadian police information center. So basically my name gets ran through all police databases across Canada every 24 hours, just to see if I have anything that comes up. And if anything comes up, any flags, then they're at my house collecting my firearms and that's it. Like it's, oh, wow. it's, it's, a, <laughs> like I said, it's just a vastly different culture up here, I guess. And so to me, and like, sorry, go ahead. That's kind of similar to like with here in Colorado for like a concealed carry license. Okay. You have to go, you have to apply for it through your sheriff's department and um, they do like the same thing, the background check, and then they'll, uh, you're required to take a course Yep. Uh, and pay a fee kind of thing for it to be able to concealed carry. Okay. Then um, like basically hide it on your person. Right. Um, but as far as like open carrying, there's no, some municipalities have restrictions on it. Like in Denver yep. County, you, you can't even open carry. Oh, see, that was, that was going to be my next asinine question. to me. Yeah. yeah. It's, I highly disagree with it, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i i like i can you respect know. your opinion yeah. too i yeah i like i i'm pretty adamant about our firearm laws here just because like i can like i kind of ran through those stats but those seem like pretty strict and pretty effective gun laws to me like where i'm getting my name ran through there every 24 hours like that's that's mm -hmm. a really effective checking system where the most vetted group of canadians in the country as the firearm owners like nobody else mm -hmm. gets that treatment and so and I think it's sorry. uh i think it's more uh and my, for my own thoughts, the, the reason that Canadian gun laws are so much more, I guess, easier to uh, carry out and enforce is because you don't have a Second Amendment type Absolutely. thing or anything like that. So Absolutely. They're a lot more malleable that way. Like, And that's why it becomes a political grab every election cycle. It's, you know, the 2.1 million gun owners in Canada get just used and shuffled around as a pawn, right, to buy votes. Right. So every four right. years, that's what happens. And so, but it's funny because the one thing that we're, you know, that firearm owners are kind of against is basically if you have a restricted firearm, which I said are all pistols, anything that they deem scary. So anything of the <laughs> AR-15 platform, any of the kind of customizable firearms that you can get, those are all restricted, right? So you have to have a special license. Mm -hmm. and those have to be, um, uh, sorry, what was the word I was looking for? But those have to actually be registered with, with the RCMP, right? So they know mm -hmm. where every single pistol that's registered, so legally owned in Canada is at all times. You have to phone them in, get a permit just to travel with your firearm from the house to the range. And that's the only place that it's allowed to go. It's either the range, your house, or the gunsmith. Those are the only three places your pistol can ever be, right? And so I know you're shaking your head because this, this is Canadians, right? <laughs> so but so that's that's everything on the restricted list is all registered. And the RCMP <clears throat> knows exactly where every single legal gun owner is, right? Now, if you have non-restricted, which are basically your typical hunting rifles, shotguns, anything over 26 and a half inches in overall length, which again, arbitrary number, but that's Canada for you. So sure. <laughs> anything over 26 and a <laughs> half inches, non-restricted. And uh, 
So those firearms aren't actually registered. And that's one thing that kind of people are fighting for now is because it's the idea that, you know, you don't have to know where every single firearm owner is because or every single firearm is because then it makes the mass confiscation that much easier. Right. Which mm-hmm. is what people are always worried about. And mm-hmm. I mean, people may say like, oh, well, that's stupid to worry about. But to me, I think as a firearm owner, typically you aren't as trusting of the government as like a typical citizen. I'm sure it's the same way in the States, probably. <laughs> like that's Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah, it's, sure. it's just, I think it comes with the territory. And so it kind of, it explains maybe the difference in the mentalities towards it. Like I talk to friends who are completely against firearms and they say, you know, well, the government should know where every single firearm is at every single time. It's like, well, really? Like you want, you know, this is my private property. I paid for it. I, I go through all the checks every day. I get my name ran through the system. Like I don't deserve some little bit of autonomy to be treated like an adult in this process at all. Like, right. And the thing is with that too, is if a person is willing to go through that type of exactly those, that type of vetting, Mm -hmm. they're not the ones you need to worry about. No. And that's, that's exactly it. And the only thing that these, and I'll, I will say it, the, uh, these uncon- unconstitutional gun laws, mm-hmm. um, and in my mind, every gun law is unconstitutional. Right, and, <laughs> I, right, and we're going to differ so, there, but I understand it's just different. Um, it's you're like I said, you're not worried. You shouldn't be worried about the ones who are going through the processes. It's these no. people that have no regard for the law. Mm-hmm. Like, for I'll use Chicago as an example. Chicago and New York have the strictest gun laws in the entire country, yet they have the most gun violence in the country because gang shootings and these criminals, they wind up breaking into people's houses and stealing the firearms. Like the majority of firearms used in gun violence in the inner cities there are Mm -hmm. stolen. So by making all these, by making these gun laws, you're not punishing the criminals. No, you're not and, punishing the people who are stealing them. You're punishing the law-abiding citizen that you're not that's gone through all your processes and is a responsible gun owner. Yeah, and if they're going to commit so. murder, that what are they worried about petty theft? You know, like a crime's yeah. a crime, and if you've got that's you've literally just hit the nail on the head on what the argument is right now in Canada because there's you know a big uh, big gun grab that's primed to take place may 1st of 2022 but they announced it may 1st of 2020 all the firearms on their list that they're going to just go around and confiscate Mm -hmm. from every canadian they're all on the restricted list so now they're moved to prohibited which means you're not allowed them at all so they've given telling me about that yeah yeah it's it's bananas (laughs) and they just keep adding to this list like it's an it's a list that they can just type in new firearms so you got to check there weekly to see if what you've got is now going to be taken in two years time yeah I know it's, it's crazy, yeah. but anyway, I don't know how we got so far down the firearm track, but I think <laughs> well, it's, that's, I mean, the funny thing is, is that's the biggest issue right now, because especially like with us libertarians, it's the whole, that's one of the most ultimate individual freedoms you have is to your property. Yeah. Kind of thing. So, um, and I, and I'll, you know, I'm going to go at the the Republicans here. Just so you know, Donald Trump has imposed more gun restrictions than Obama ever did. So (laughs) (laughs) what do you mean? That's what I'm saying is that uh, these Republicans and Democrats, the duopoly, they're not here for the people. They're not here for your rights and your freedoms. They're here for, they're basically two heads, the same snake. 
They're yeah. here to line their own po- pockets and nothing more. And I think that I think it was actually you who shared that little political test or that political spectrum that you kind of answer the questions and it plots you in basically the four quadrants, right? But it's interesting to see it. So it's left versus right, which is obviously in American terms, Republican and Democrat or in Canadian terms, liberal and conservative. But then it has kind of the top quadrant, which is authoritarianism and then the bottom quadrant, which is libertarianism. So like, that's one thing that I think Mm -hmm. people should, people should realize is that like libertarianism isn't necessarily plotting itself versus left or right. It's more top versus bottom. The idea of authoritarianism or, you know, personal rights, which I think is a a really clear distinction to make. And it seems like, like, at least for myself, that's kind of my biggest worry is just where we're kind of going with the authoritarianism, not necessarily whether it's the left taking us there or the right taking us there, but it does seem that they're both going that way to me, at least like, especially through, the lockdowns, you know? Right. Absolutely. And that's the, where it comes, a lot of the confusion comes from and it's where the view is obstructed or clouded Yeah. Um, with libertarian. There's not just like, you're not only libertarian. There is left libertarian. There is right libertarian. Yep. Um, which uh, just like there's, you know, the conservative and liberal and then the authoritarian, right. And authoritarian left. It's a 3d, spectrum i guess you could kind of say absolutely um, or two-dimensional i guess is what it would be but um yeah so like there's more p- people who are left-leaning libertarian and there's people who are right-leaning libertarian which feeds into the whole um you know uh libertarians hate libertarians oh yeah I, that's because what i was just no, gonna say never agree that's what i was just gonna say is that there's <laughs> no it's... more infighting than within libertarians that there's there's not that much infighting in the democrat or in you know the republican party it's all yeah, libertarians. you're not you're not a real libertarian if you don't accuse another libertarian of not being a libertarian <laughs> <laughs> you're not libertarian enough i know exactly I, I, you're I totally not a real know. libertarian so it's that's where the, a lot of the confusion comes from too is like they think they see libertarian, they think, oh, this guy hates roads, and this guy hates poor people. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it goes through all that, but it's it's not it's not that. It's more of I value the individual rights of someone. And so like um with LGBTQ rights, with gun rights, with uh drugs, with prostitution, mm-hmm. um, abortion, those are all the hot takes kind of thing. Yep. And at the end of the day, as for me personally, if it's all, it's a hundred percent with live and let live. Absolutely. If what if, if what I'm doing doesn't hurt anyone else, you know, leave me the heck alone. Yeah. You know, kind of thing. And I can, and extend the same, the same freedoms to everybody else too. I, I have exactly. no problem with that at yeah. all. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to, you know, if you are, if you want to be in a same sex marriage, if you want to smoke weed, if you want to do drugs and anything like that, if it doesn't hurt anyone else, then I am 100% behind you to in support of your rights to do that. I may not, you know, agree with certain things as far as like, um, with, you know, with anything, it's there's those saying, if you don't like something, then don't, don't do it, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, fine. But uh, I'm also, I, so I may not agree with a lifestyle, but I'm absolutely going to support your right to do it. Yeah. Kind and I think, 
So I, I think that's what comes down to libertarianism is just that, you know, equal, equal treatment for everybody. Everybody gets to live out whatever, you know, it exactly what you said. Yeah. If it's all not of affecting your rights all yeah. of the time. Yeah. If it's not <laughs> affecting anybody else, then go for it. As long as you're not harming anybody, then yeah, all, all, all the power to you. It's all about mm-hmm. individual rights. And I was just gonna, I know I had sent you these quotes beforehand, but I was just going to read one that I found pretty interesting from, you know, the granddaddy of the US, George Washington. So here's this quote from this book that I've been reading. It's more than 200 years ago, George Washington declared that political parties are likely to, quote, become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious and unprincipled men will enabled will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government. And time has proven our first president correct. And that's kind of that's so interesting. It's what you were talking about, how the political parties are kind of swinging farther right and farther left just to try to use that power and swallow up more supporters, essentially. It's, mm-hmm. man, like it's it's so crazy to me. And it's one thing that I, like I didn't know much about the Libertarian Party before you had mentioned it, but the kind of the ideas of it are are incredible. Just the personal rights and all that stuff and kind of getting out of this left versus right and more into this authoritarian versus, yeah, libertarian movement instead Mm -hmm. and i think uh i think it's something that kind of a lot of people should Mm -hmm. kind of take note of especially nowadays and you see like we touched on earlier but just the level of like vitriol in the tribalism between the two sides like i have friends i go through my my facebook timeline it's it's insane like some people will paint anybody who votes or who you know considers themselves quote-unquote republican they paint them all as racist bigots like it doesn't matter there is mm-hmm. no, there's no redemption. Like if you, if you support the Republican party, then there's, there's no way you can ever stain, like remove that stain from your soul. I've seen that literal quote verbatim, which is insane to me. And then it's the same with people who, you know, consider anybody who votes democratic or liberal, that they're mm-hmm. all, you know, some crazy hippies or utopian communists and all this stuff, which, you know, there's, there's both of those people do exist on either side, but it's such a small fraction. There's no way you can paint both sides of the party with that same broad brush. And it's so frustrating to see. Right. And it, and it goes along the lines of these stereotypes too. Like you, everyone knows that stereotypes are bad. Yeah. You know, you're not supposed to stereotype someone. So to just judge someone based solely on their political affiliation is not only wrong, but it's also extremely closed-minded. Absolutely. Um, you're writing off 50% of the population when you're doing that. Yeah. And so like, yeah. And it, and as a libertarian, it's fun because I get attacked from both sides. <laughs> yeah. And so, and, and as you know, me, I love, I, it's, I live to troll on Facebook. Yeah. So well, you're a goalie. You're a psychopath <laughs> too. Like I get the same thing. Right. You like You like to be under fire. It's, I get it. <laughs> Yeah, so it's like, um, yeah, like apparently, and I didn't know this prior to the election, apparently I got three votes, you know, oh. because I get told by Republicans that my vote for Joe Jorgensen was a vote for Trump, uh, for Biden right, and vice versa. So uh, essentially, according to them, I was voting for Trump, Biden, and Jorgensen. Wow. So it's like that, that waste of vote privilege. Kind of thing. You know, Look at that know. libertarian it's... privilege. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, like bunching people and that even feeds the stereotype about libertarians is that you don't care about the people around you and that you're only caring about 
your virtues kind of thing or virtue mm-hmm. signaling, but it's like voting libertarian is the ultimate support of an individual. Absolutely. Kind of thing. And, yep. and I can respect that people disagree with it and I'm more than willing to discuss it in a, in a good manner. Mm-hmm. Um, but to say that, you know, you know Oh, you're a uh, Republican. You, you know, you you just hate uh, people. You or you're a Democrat. You hate people, but they're, you're the tolerant side. And it's mm-hmm. you know, yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's, it's crazy to me. It's it's nuts it's, to me too. It's just and like I do think there's there needs to you know kind of people have to kind of start hammering out that middle ground. Which again, I think the idea of a third party, especially in the States where it's literally two parties, essentially, Mm -hmm. like I said, at least in Canada, we do have three parties. I think if I'm not mistaken, it's only ever been liberal or conservative who've held the seat of the prime minister. Um, Mm -hmm. Because again, the third party NDP is even too far left for Canadian standards. So that, that should give you an idea, but what, uh, but it's, yeah, I mean, we've got to try to hammer out some middle ground. I mean, I may not, agree with somebody on 95% of their politics. But if that 5% is something that could move people forward, like it's something that we have to kind of start brushing to the side. I think it's, it's crazy to just write people off based on what, who they voted for or what political affiliation they have. And then just, they're completely, they're dead to me. You know, you've just, yeah. Vilified half of the population. It's crazy. Yeah. Because like, you and I have spoken to people who are, you know, left, mm-hmm. uh, that consider themselves Democrat, but they're pro gun right? or Republican who are pro, you know, support pro choice kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's like to just label someone as, as Republican or Democrat without even talking to him or anything like that is it's so off touch and off base that it's, um, really unfortunate. And so, with the libertarian party, you know, as a, it kind of contradicts itself as being, as being a formal party kind of thing. Um, because we, it's more about the individual right type stuff like that. And with elections, like George Washington said, he didn't want parties yeah, kind of thing. And so, but at this point in time, because we are a party based political system, it's a necessity. Absolutely. So in order to get that support, we have to recruit, um, you know, like-minded people and make them aware of our beliefs and like that stuff and, and bring them into one, one umbrella to try and break the duopoly, which progress is absolutely being made. We, people see this election as a huge step back because in 2016, Gary Johnson got about, 4 million votes, I want to say, which was about uh, like 4% of the vote, Okay, I think. And But then this year with Joe Jorgensen, she only got about a little over 1%. Okay. And some will see that as a step back. But historically speaking, third parties don't do as well in a election where one of the candidates is an incumbent. And so with this year, even with that regression in numbers, it was still the number two highest vote total in for the Libertarian Party of all time. That's great. And I mean, uh, like, so, 
Yeah. And I mean, all I heard about was record voter turnout and all this stuff in the States, which I mean, I think part of that is obviously because of the virus. I mean, a lot of people, I think, had a lot less to do. So they were kind of stewing over politics at the same time. But I just wanted Mm -hmm. to touch back on something that you had said in that last interaction, because we both do talk to people who, again, kind of kind of cross the line on certain certain policies. You know, they may Mm-hmm. They, they may yeah they associate themselves with one party or the other but they have a lot of beliefs that kind of cross that that uh, divide and what i think is kind of crazy about today and i know i've talked about it in other episodes mm-hmm. but is how people talk to each other online especially in the like this lockdown time that we're in because you don't yeah. have as much face-to-face interaction nobody seems to be seeking out any anybody who has an opposing mindset to them like it's all about just you know, finding that reinforcement, finding like-minded people and getting into those echo chambers, you know, which I mean, social Mm -hmm. media does a good job of doing. And it's, I think it's so important. Like, I mean, we can disagree on things. We're having like a face-to-face conversation. So even though, you know, you're in Colorado, I'm in BC, but still like through the camera, it makes it more personal, right? Or even in the small group that Mm -hmm. we have in that group chat, it's what, 10, 12 people maybe in there. Something like that. Yeah. And so, yeah, like it's stuff where you can actually kind of get to know each other and you know that there's more than just whatever your affiliation is like that people do cross that divide on certain topics and it's it's so important to kind of have those small face-to-face or even just small group conversations to actually yeah get to know each other rather than just associate everybody with whatever political leanings they seem to gravitate towards yeah absolutely and it's like with our chat we've got you know of those 10 people there's a few different viewpoints on different things and it's it's nice because we're all friends but Mm -hmm. we can also have those uh differing you know opinions on things and we actually have like adult conversations about it Mm -hmm. i completely agree whereas like some comment sections especially on like news pages on on facebook Mm -hmm. like someone they the only contribution they have is like they see an opposing view and they will comment, you know, MAGA 2020 or Trump 2020 yeah. and then and vice versa and stuff like they, they have zero desire to have a actual discussion mm-hmm. about things. And it goes back to the whole, you know, uh, whose club is coolest because, you know, with those stereotypes and all that stuff, it's, there's no, there's no middle ground with these, with a lot of people. And so, um, when you're trying to have a conversation about something, you're not going to change someone's mind 99% of the time, mm-hmm. but you're going to make people aware of your viewpoint and hopefully they'll see, you know, that they're the other side of it and come to their own conclusion. Yeah. And, but in the age of like Facebook and social media, it's the echo chambers and everyone believes they're right. Mm-hmm. And there's no, there's no, because it's not a face-to-face conversation, there is no real uh, consequence to being, you know, pardon my language, but to be an asshole to someone. Yeah. Yeah. You can't get punched in the face or anything. Like it's, it's real easy right. to, to talk mad shit behind a computer screen. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's very disheartening to where like social media has its benefits, but also it's really a uh, source you know, sore spot or, you know, regression as far as human interaction goes. Oh, to make ab- progress on things. Absolutely. We're you know? essentially dehumanizing each other. And, and like mm-hmm. I said, even in the small group chat, like you get to, 
know the people as human beings. Like they may not share your same view on every single point, but you understand that there's, you know, a reason behind it and that they aren't just this. Yeah. They're a person like they have a full range Mm -hmm. of opinions on totally different topics and kind of, yeah, like, I don't know about you, but that the whole where social media is going and kind of the online interactions terrifies me for my kids. Like, I think, I think my kids are younger than yours. My oldest is nine and I have four boys. How, how old are your girls again? Or if, if yeah, my girls saying. are uh, 10 and six. Okay. And so 10 year old, she'll be 11 in February. So, okay. Okay. So ours, yeah. but ours are our oldest are whatever, about 15 months apart then mine will be 10 mm-hmm. in 10 next July. But um, yeah, like, do you, do you kind of think of where that's going and have you, Oh, it terrifies me. It, yeah, it terrifies sure. me too, man. I've got a book that actually I just lent it out, uh, yesterday, but it's called the coddling of the American mind. Like as a dad mm-hmm. of daughters, I can't recommend it enough. Like I, I only have boys, but it has chapters in there specific to girls and social media and kind of the effects that it has on them. It's, it's eye opening, man. Like I, I could not, I could not recommend it more to any parent, essentially, but especially a parent of girls. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, and I'll definitely have to pick it up to to check it out for sure. But um, yeah, well, like as a father of girls, like the whole I'm horrified Yeah. for them to go out in the world like they're they're young and I'm trying to teach them, you know, the values that they should have and stuff like that. And but like with social media, like it ain't happening on my watch. No, no, <laughs> no. Like, that's like our kids, my, too like my 10 year old, she has, you know, a little Facebook messenger, uh, for kids. Yeah. Thing. We've, so we we've got the same for she's allowed to, to talk to and all that stuff. And so she's got two or three little friends at school and from, and family members and stuff that she's allowed to talk to, but it's only when we allow it. Mm-hmm. Like she doesn't have her own tablet. She doesn't have her own phone or anything yep. just yet. Um, which we're going to have to get her a phone here probably next year because uh, when she goes into sixth grade, she won't be able to go to the after school program. Oh, I see. She will have to get her home and we're going to have to get her a phone so that she can contact us. Yep. Um, But she's not going to have any type of social media on there because yeah, I'm horrified about, you know, predators trying to talk to her or exposing her to too much of the world at once. Well, that's the scary thing too. Like our, our nine-year-old, he had, I don't know if you're familiar with a game called Roblox. I think it's more, more probably popular with the boys, but we saw like this whole news story on it on how, how predators were so effective in that game and luring kids in and just like it was chat, but then they would try to lure them into whatever email or video and all this other stuff. And it's terrifying, man. Like we ended up just deleting the game off his, he has a little tablet, but it's not hooked up to cellular or anything. It has the same things. It has mm-hmm. messenger kids and it's, we, we restrict his time. Obviously it's right now we've kind of allowed him to do a little bit more because it's so locked down. There's not a whole bunch else to do. So mm-hmm. But it's the same thing, man. It terrifies me. Like he wanted to start a YouTube channel and we just flat out were like, not a chance, buddy. Like, and he's like, well, right. I see, I see you putting like uh, your podcast out there. I'm like, but I'm, th- I'm in my thirties. I'm your dad. And like, I can, I can make, <laughs> right. I can make that decision to put my voice out there. You know, I, I, I can do that, but you're, you're nine years old. I don't want you putting your face anywhere on the internet right now. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's terrifying because- to me. And they don't understand that once it's out there, 
it's no longer yours. No. And that, so their, their minds aren't able to grasp that. Yeah. So that's, I guess the only part of me that's the, that's okay with a little bit of authoritarianism. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as a, as a parent and as a mentor figure, I think, I think that's different, but I completely agree with you there. At the same time though, you also do have to allow that bit of exposure so that they know what to look for as far as things that are good and what to and how to, you know, become, cause you know, you don't want to be that helicopter parent to where no. they, then your parent becomes old enough to go out on their own, but they have no idea what to do because they've been coddled for their entire life. Exactly. They're shell shocked like, at, at real life. And that, like I said, like, that book, man, you've, you've got, you'll love it. Like it's literally called the coddling of the American mind. It's exactly what you're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. So I guess I could probably just already know what's in the book, but, (laughs) but yeah, like this generation that's like so coddled and then it's combined with the whole social media and all that stuff like that. And so there's really not the consequence of your actions. So you're, um, you know, your kid's not really having the chance to experience that, you know, the real world, um, in the natural way that we did kind of thing. Yeah. They're kind of more exposed to just like, like the online bullying and all that stuff. Like we never went through that as kids. No, no kind of thing. So I think we really, must have just missed it really. Like we must have just so. missed it. Yeah. Cause I think uh, when like AOL instant yep. messenger and like the Yahoo chat rooms and all that stuff or whatever came out, yep. I was, I think in early high school. Yeah. That's when we had it too. I, I remember instant messenger. Yeah, I was able to know, you know, the right from wrong and like the, you could see, but at the same time, there's, it wasn't, I guess, as widely used as today, like, with like predators and all that stuff. And I also don't so think you were exposed to kind of the randomness of Facebook. Like if you, if you comment on something public, like any Joe Blow can comment on it, right? At least back mm-hmm. when we had MSN Messenger or AOL Messenger, like you were going to see that kid tomorrow. And if you said something across the line he's gonna punch you in the face like that you know there there were still there were still real world consequences to even your online behavior when we were younger and growing up whereas now it can just be complete strangers like let alone the the child predator idea of it but just just having consequences for what you actually say to that person on the other side of the screen we actually still had those consequences yeah like i could these days i could tell some guy in england to you know that i hope he gets cancer or some crap like right. that i would never say i would never say that oh come on you're a mean person I, I know you oh i can be but i choose i choose <laughs> i'm not just to. kidding no I'm i've never kidding. wished that on anyone no no me um, neither. but i could if i wanted to and there would be absolutely zero consequence for it yeah uh, whereas as a kid you know you could yeah you'd definitely get punched in the face the next day at school for saying yeah. it so <laughs> yeah it's it's, it's just such a different era mm-hmm. and as parents and stuff like that like that everything's changing so quickly and you know the the old uh the previous generations have no idea how you know how things are and then we're trying to just keep up with it just so mm-hmm. that we can protect our kids kind of thing and it's yeah it's really scary because you know you feel like you're falling behind when you hear just a new word that they're that's oh, popular 
Oh, I know. When my son came home talking about dabbing, I was like, hold on, hold on. What are you talking about here? And he's like, the dance yeah. move. I'm like, oh, thank God. Okay, good. <laughs> it's like, yeah, because at, you and I, you hear dabbing and yeah. you're thinking, you know, the get we, you high. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. yeah. And I, that's, yeah, I was like, yeah. hold on, what is this? And anyway, then it was a dance move. But, and so, yeah, it's funny what you're talking about there. Like, we obviously work with all different kind of age ranges and just different generations of people. Like, do you notice, do you notice kind of some of the younger apprentices coming in that they may have a little bit of that coddled mentality, or do you find that the trades is still kind of the people that are drawn to trades don't kind of fall into that? What's, what's your experience with it? I, there are some that I have seen it with, and then Same there's here. others that it's, they have, you know, you would have no idea that they're only 20 years old kind of thing. Like I've got, two techs on my crew mm-hmm. uh one of which isn't even old enough to drink yet and <laughs> you can go to war uh, at what 18 but you can't drink till 21 exactly yeah. it's bananas yeah. um but he um and i'm sure he may or may not hear this he doesn't have a facebook so i don't know if he'll see it here or whatever and oh, yeah. um he'll know absolutely that i'm gonna talk shit about him but <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's there are some times where it's like you can you can look at them work and you know, like I can work at see him from afar work and and it's sometimes he's more concerned about talking to the buddies or he'll I'll catch him on his phone kind of thing or whatever mm-hmm. and I'll have to just you know reel him back in and stuff like that so sometimes the work ethic just isn't there yeah. and we've had people who have are completely useless kind yeah. of thing. But and at the same time, we just got another guy that just started recently who's been with us for about a month. And the guy is, he's super, you know, motivated to get at it. And he's learning as much as he can. And he's filling out his training files and all that stuff like that. And he's, you know, he's really got that really good work ethic that you want to see as a, in a tech. And you can even just tell the potential is there for him that he wants to advance his career and everything like that. So yeah, man, we've, we, I've seen a lot of it too, across sites, like, uh, especially working on kind of bigger crews, you kind of get a bigger, just a bigger group of people to kind of, you know, view and kind of observe, mm-hmm. but it was the same idea. Like we had, you know, we've had great apprentices in the past. Usually they're kind of like kids who grew up like farm boys up North, especially like they kind of had mm-hmm. that work ethic instilled in them from a, like a young age. But then a lot of the time, yeah, it's, it's that work ethic. That's really tough. Like, I don't know how it is in aircraft mechanics. If there's one specific area of the job that just is dirtier and kind of gets dumped on the greener guys, but in mm-hmm. like electrical, I mean, it's cable pulling. It's kind of the grunt work. Like if you're, if you're working in residential, it's going in attics or crawl spaces, or if you're on a, a big cable tray pull, it's, you know, you're at the corners, you're at the heaviest spots trying to pull these cables into place and it's grunt work. It sucks. But at the same time, everybody's gone through it to get to wherever you are in the trade, whether you're a journeyman, a foreman, whatever, everybody's gone through those same shit days. And I've found a lot of the, yeah, a lot of the younger apprentices specifically just don't seem to have the, the work ethic or the mentality to do that. Like they expect to be put into positions where they're splicing cables into place or they're doing connections, like the fine stuff that more usually gets done by the journeyman or the higher level apprentices, like level three and four. But it's, um, it's crazy to me because I I've kind of viewed the same thing. It seems to be that the work ethic is missing in a lot of people now. Yeah, absolutely. That's, 
as it's you perfectly described it it's all across pretty much you pick a trade and it, you're gonna find that kind of thing yeah um but like with with us with maintenance we, yeah we absolutely have those jobs that no one wants to do mm-hmm. kind of thing and some of them are more technical than others but like the jobs that are easier to do like panel pulling uh cleaning out fuel bays cleaning out uh underfloor areas type thing it's you know it's the grunt work but at the same time it's it's that type of work that's gonna get you that you're gonna appreciate not having to do when you gain that experience kind of thing absolutely so it's it goes along the whole lines of earning your keep kind of thing and that i've heard you and others say countless times Mm -hmm. you know just gotta gotta earn your wings like i'm not gonna um you're, I can't trust you with the more technical jobs if you can't manage the easy ones or yeah. the, the um, you know, mind-numbing ones kind of thing that don't take a lot of technical knowledge to accomplish. So if you're complaining about that, I'm not going to bother even teaching you about control cables and actuators and all that type of stuff. No, so exactly. It's all with, if they don't have the work ethic there, then it rubs even your supervision and your trainers the wrong way mm-hmm. kind of thing to where if you really want to advance your career, you need to show that you have the work ethic and you're willing to learn um, your trade kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, I've, I've said it to other people. I've said it on this podcast before, but you know, there's a, this one comedian that I listen to on podcasts and he's got his saying when he was kind of grinding it out in his years as like an open micer and traveling from place to place in a, beat down car his his mm-hmm. whole mantra was just eat shit cash checks like that's that's really kind of the mentality you have to have sometimes especially when you're getting started into something i mean the beginning yeah. of it's never going to be the easy part you do, you know you may see you look at what a journeyman electrician or a journeyman aircraft mechanic is doing and think oh that's cool i i'm, I'm so happy i get to do that well hold on pump the brakes here bud like you've got to start kind of at the bottom and work your way up to those tasks. Right. And I just see that, mm-hmm. you know, it feels like that, that mentality isn't there as often nowadays, but it's uh, yeah. Everybody I talk to, it seems to be across all the trades across all different areas of work, but you know, hopefully that can kind of get instilled back into people. Yeah. And it, it goes along the line, like these schools, like we talked about earlier, the, with the trades and stuff that the schools will, glamorize it as much as they can because they're trying to get butts in the classroom totally totally you're going to be working on jet engines you're going to be working on all of the areas of the aircraft and stuff and they don't tell you about you know pulling toilet tanks and cleaning those out and you know the fact that you're gonna find human excrement (laughs) under floorboards (laughs) they don't tell you that they're like what i'm a plumber now yeah, it's uh, some of these things are absolutely disgusting and the schools will not tell you that. And so these kids that get in here and um, and I say kids by just being green in the industry, because we'll get guys who have never wrenched on an airplane that are in their 40s kind of thing. Like yeah. I went to when I went to school, there were guys in their 50s. Do you find class. that do you find that awkward mentoring them at all? I know I struggled with it a bit when I was working in oil field because I had like, I can think of in specific, I had a 45 year old second year apprentice and I was 27 and his journeyman at the time. And I found it 
really awkward. Like I kind of talked to my foreman about it at the time. I, he got, he got me mm-hmm. settled into it, but I'm not going to lie. Like it was, it was awkward. It's, it, it's kind of uncomfortable at times to me anyway. Yeah. And same here. Cause sometimes it's, and me being a lead mechanic, it's, yep. it is difficult to sometimes um, get those older guys to really, you know, follow you as a leader kind of thing Yeah, because they've, their experiences are different from yours, but it's um, it's hard to bridge that age gap because they view you as the young guy who, mm-hmm. even though you're in that supervisory role and that training role and you're teaching them how to do their job, yeah, they still view you as that kid that isn't going to, you know, kind of tell me what to do yeah. kind of thing. And those tend to work the, their way, weed their way out and they're, far and few between as far as at least at my employer goes. Oh uh, yeah. I found Um, the same thing, which is I'm thankful for, but it's um, I guess the it's for me personally, I've learned to really just kind of ignore that disdain for age wise. Yeah. And just, you know, we're all there to do a job. I'm going to tell you how to do the job. If you're not going to do the job, we'll find someone else to do it. That was the same mentality I had too. I just kind of brushed it so, off my shoulder that, that kind of, yeah, the disdain that you were talking about. I just ended up brushing mm-hmm. it off my shoulder and not, not really worrying about it. And eventually like what I find anyway is that if you kind of work alongside, even if there's that little bit of animosity at the beginning, if you don't kind of fuel it and add to it, they do, you know, everybody comes to realize that, Oh shit, this guy may be 10 years younger than me, but he does actually know what he's talking about. And I am learning a lot of mm-hmm. stuff from him. And I think, I think that goes a long way in just, yeah, just showing and displaying your aptitude and your work ethic and kind of, you know, people, people will follow that and they will realize that there's value in that. Right. Yeah. Just, uh, you got to make them know that you're not, you know, blowing smoke up their ass. Exactly. Kind of thing that you're not just a, you're a, uh, a do-gooder that's trying to impress, you know, upper management kind of thing. And you're just trying to get, you know, get them pushed out the door kind of thing, but that you're actually there to, you want them to learn and that they understand the objective of the, of the project and all that stuff. And that, I think if you earn anyone's respect, whether it be an older guy or a young guy, if you earn their respect by your actions Mm -hmm. in and leading by example, rather than uh, by command, then it's going to get you a lot further, not only in your own career, but, it's going to help advance their career as well. Totally. And it's good to convey to them too. And this is what I tried to convey to anybody who was working kind of underneath me, or I was being in a mentor role to them is that, you know, like I want you to do well too, because it reflects better on me at the same time, you know, like mm-hmm. I want to be able to teach you so that you can do well. Cause it'll reflect better on me too. Like we're, we're both kind of building each other up here. It's not just, you know, I'm not just taking from you and you're not just taking from me here. Like this is a team effort. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about with trades and kind of the idea of a meritocracy where you can, you can work your way to the top and you're actually rewarded for mm-hmm. the effort that you put in. Yeah, absolutely. It's a whole matter of we're here for the same, we have the same end game, I yeah. guess you could say. And we're, we're all here pulling... for the same goal. We're all trying to get this done kind yeah. of thing. So all pull um, on the same rope. Yeah. And it's, it's, you can kind of, you get a lot more better results if you uh, command respect rather than demand it. 
man. That's, if that makes sense. That makes know? perfect sense. And I think that's a perfect way to put it too. If you actually show that aptitude as opposed to just try to, you know, tell them to respect you, it's, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's such a better way to go. I couldn't have put it better myself. Yeah. It's, uh, I guess, you know, all the old sayings ring true, especially for us. It's, you know, uh, it just works so much better. Yeah. I'm sure we just rattled off like 18, 18, like what is it called when it's, uh, just an overused phrase. It's getting late Those here. Cliche phrases. Yes, we just rattled <laughs> off like 18 cliches there, but it, they all ring true, especially they, in trade. They're so true. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, they're not cliche sayings for no reason. No, exactly. So. Well, I know it's getting late here and you're an hour ahead of me. So it's definitely getting late there. Uh, I guess we could wrap it up, but uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on here. I think that was a a good talk. And I mean, neither of us are again, experts in libertarianism or I don't know how many tangents we got off on, but you know, we probably spent about 10% of the time talking about libertarianism, but whatever. (laughs) It it all, it all goes together though, too, at the same time, you know, so basically the only thing I, if anyone's going to take anything from that, the only thing I would say is, you know, expand your horizons politically, you know, uh, professionally and all that stuff like that. So I would encourage people listening to actually take a serious look into libertarianism and the idea behind it. And just to, because I know there are millions out there that are fed up with uh, the status quo that we've got right now. Yeah. So I would really encourage people to take a look into it with an open mind and just see what it's about and see how much of it you do agree with and what you don't. Once again, thanks a lot, CJ, for coming on. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that talk. It's something that I've kind of started to get more interested in kind of as this whole divide seems to deepen. It's nice to kind of look for something else. And anyway, we didn't actually get into Uh, some of the stuff that I really wanted to, which is kind of regarding the small government and less regulation and all that aspect of it. Um, But the personal rights is awesome as well. So anyway, if you want more info on that, you can always look it up or shoot me an email. The link is in the info for the podcast. And anyway, uh, that's it for today. Um, I hope you found some value in this week's episode. If you did and are interested in more content like this, please rate, comment, subscribe, and recommend the podcast to a friend. I really appreciate all the feedback you guys have given me to this point and look forward to hearing from you again. As always, the podcast page is The Plaid Jacket Philosopher on Facebook and at Jacket Plaid on Twitter. That concludes this week's episode. Thank you so much for the continued support and especially to those of you who reach out weekly with comments on each episode. Have a great week and I'll talk to you all again soon.